This week on Log It, we explore the 1986 thriller Maximum Overdrive from the drug addled mind of Stephen King. But before that, we will do our last four. And before that, I will tell you why I am solo this week. No Ian, no Angelo, no Andy, just Caleb. Appropriate for the first Halloween episode of the year, as it is quite scary to do an episode alone. This is the first time it'll be an experiment. We'll see how it goes. I'm recording alone this week due to my own failure. We recorded the whole episode, but it was unusable because I recorded with the wrong microphone input and my audio was unlistenable to me. I could not edit the episode or listen back to it because it was really bad. We were going to reschedule and do another episode, but he was unable to because he's busy and has uh, things to do, and that is understandable. So I apologize to Andy for messing that up. It was a really great episode, too. He was awesome, and we had a lot of fun talking about this movie, Maximum Overdrive. But here we are. He actually chose next week's movie, which I will announce at the end of the episode, and he will be back for that. So... Excited to have him back. It was a great episode. Maybe I'll pull clips of, of some of his notes to use in this episode. First, let's talk about Last Four. So Witness, we watched that episode I recorded with Ian last week. That will still be coming out in the future. Uh, we decided just to save it as we're coming up on the holiday season. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to have a couple in the chamber. After that, I watched Friday the 13th, the final chapter. This is the fourth film in the Friday the 13th series. I assume at one point it was supposed to be the last one based on the title. This was really fun. At this point, Friday the 13th is just a straight slasher horror movie. There's not a ton of the like heart or um, <clears throat> metaphor of the original. It's it's basically just a uh, big giant Jason. He, he, he's gotten bigger each movie. You know, he's barely in the first one. He only appears at the end more as a metaphor in the river as a little kid. The second one, he comes back as a bigger bad guy grown up. Third one, he be turns a little more into like a superhero bad guy. And by now he's just invincible. You know, he's unstoppable, totally lost any of the metaphor. After that, I watched Maximum Overdrive directed by Stephen King, this movie. I'm sure lots of you know that as this is a movie podcast, but it is one of those movies where you're like, when I learned about it, I only learned, I only saw this for the first time and only watched it because I heard about it, you know, four or five years ago, I want to say. But when I heard about it, it's like, oh, this is directed by Stephen King? And you're like, yeah. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then you find out the soundtrack is ACDC. The full soundtrack of this movie is ACDC. And you go, this is incredible. How did this happen? I didn't even know ACDC did a soundtrack. When I told Andy about the, the movie this week, and maybe I'll play his reaction here. When I typed in the name on my um, on my phone, li literally the DVD image came up, and on the bottom corner was like the little ribbon that just said music by ACDC, and I was like, what the hell? I was like, is that real? And <laughs> and then sure enough, when I started watching, I was like, whoa, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is a great movie. I'm excited to talk more about it. I'll finish up my last four. This is a little bit cheating because I just watched this movie last night, but I watched King Kong versus Godzilla. 
I've been kind of working my way through the old Godzilla films. I actually skipped the actual second one, uh, Godzilla Raids Again, I think it's called, because I saw the King Kong vs. Godzilla, and I found a cool copy of it on Internet Archive, Criterion Blu-ray version, which is uh, really high quality and looked beautiful, so I was excited to watch that. As far as I can tell, this is the first Godzilla movie that's in color. And honestly, it does a bit of a disservice. Godzilla really looks more like a guy in a suit in color. And I think overall, there's just a bit more camp to this film. It's it's more comical. There's there's much more of a playful tone compared to the first Godzilla. And I've watched a bit of the second one, Godzilla Raids Again, and, and that one as well was still more on the serious side. The first two were made in 55 and 56, I believe. Uh, the American bastardized version of Godzilla, Godzilla King of Monsters, came out in 56 as well. Godzilla was 1954, and Godzilla Raids Again was actually 1955. But this one was made in 62, so about you know, five, six years after the second one. So I think there was a bit of a change in tone and and goal. I think there's much more franchise building thoughts rather than metaphor, kind of like what happened with Friday the 13th. And in my opinion, where the heart of the movie really gets lost and the, the villain just becomes a big, you know, bad guy, but this one, he fights King Kong and that's really a fun, fun stuff. It's pretty hilarious. There's a good, 30 seconds of fighting that's just them yelling at each other from uh, across a hill and um Godzilla, or king kong's main move is throwing rocks at godzilla which actually is very effective but then godzilla when he knocks over king kong with his uh fire breath is able to kick rocks on him with his tail and that i wonder if you picked that up from godzilla but a lot of rock throwing rocks are very important to these fights which is um, funny when you think of the immense power of these two guys, but it's a fun movie. A bit of um, stereotyping of uh, indigenous people and, you know, in some of this, but I think that's just kind of inevitable with movies from that era, you know, though I disagree with with, uh, with it. You know, and before we get to, to the movie, because this is going by really fast i will uh steal a segment that me and andy did just kick off halloween and maybe i'll broach this question again next week with everybody but to uh just give a little halloween stuff i want to talk about you know scariest movies for me there were a few that really made a mark there was impact in my mental health and ability to to function for years with some of these movies but one big one was signs Okay, so Science came out in 2002. I was 11 years old, highly scared kid, highly influenced by scary stuff. Science was a big one. Those aliens were terrifying. There were years where just being an an empty yard alone would be scary, even midday, just with the idea of, you know, invisible guys just sitting right there at any point. I mean, once they're invisible, what, you know, you could be scared of anything, which is, you know, why that mo- half that movie is just cornfields of nothing, you know, and it's terrifying. There's a few classic scenes in that movie that were especially haunting. One of the famous ones is the Brazilian alien tape where Joaquin Phoenix is in a closet watching news. Somebody apparently got footage of these aliens and he's sitting there watching, you know, and there's a bunch of kids at a birthday party in Brazil screaming and 
Portuguese and out of nowhere, an alien walks past. You know, everybody knows that scene. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So many great scenes. But those are some fun ones. Uh, maybe I'll play some clips of Andy talking about his. When I was like, I want to say I was like five or six. Um, my parents were watching Chucky. And and I don't know if you remember, but the name of the kid is also Andy. And I also had a My Buddy doll, which is the doll that they kind of copied. So after watching that, I was like, oh, no. And and then like from then on, like I would always like I wouldn't I wouldn't play with my doll anymore. I would like secretly grab my my buddy doll and I would go outside to the like, you know, the the big tub and I would throw away my doll. And then, of course, my dad is the one that takes the trash out. So when he takes the trash out, he sees my doll in the trash and he would take it out and put it back on my bed and not tell me anything. And, you know, it drove me nuts. <laughs> or like sometimes he would put the the cassette he would put it on my pillow so when I would wake up, the movie is just on my bed just to freak me out. <laughs> it's very traumatizing. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not trying to roast my dad or like say anything bad about it because I really love him. And like, no hard feelings on that. But yeah, it was like, that probably is why I don't watch horror movies. We'll, we'll come back to this question next week with the group, but I figured I'd, I'd go into it a little bit just to stall. And that gives us 15 minutes on the warm up before we get to maximum overdrive, which seems good. So I'm going to take a break. When I come back, we will get into maximum overdrive, Stephen King, cocaine, killer cars, ACDC, Emilio Estevez, middle America yelling, lots of yelling, people yelling at cars, inanimate objects. Well, not in this, but we'll be back. Thanks. Hi, my name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Now, who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis! It's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't miss me in the dark. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're going to get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming and he is Maximum King. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. 
that is a really great trailer I, I love that stephen king hosts it i think it adds a nice touch to it multiple times stephen king kind of throws shade at the previous films the previous adaptations of his work and there's not there's a lot of bad stephen king movies that's for sure especially now like he basically lets anybody make a movie out of his books so it makes sense there are a lot of bad but back then it was still kind of a big deal to have a stephen king movie before maximum overdrive there had been 10 adaptations of stephen king works including carrie the shining christine cujo children of the corn stand by me stand by me was made just before maximum overdrive it was the 10th stephen king adaptation but those are some good movies so it's funny that he's throwing shade and i can't help but feel that he is directing it specifically at stephen uh, or stanley kubrick they both have sk initials Stanley Kubrick for The Shining. He was famously not a fan of The Shining. He felt like he had fundamental differences in his interpretation of horror and ghost stories specifically. Kubrick found them to be optimistic. King found them to be depressing, as you you know can probably feel in most of his work. King would also say he felt the movie The Shining was a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine and that Torrance, Jack Nicholson's character, was inherently he had no arc and that he didn't grow at all he was just crazy the whole movie and that lost any of the heart of the film in the documentary room 237 they also say that there is a red slug bug crash by the side of the road which was the car that the torrances drove to the shining in the book a red slug bug and the metaphor of it being crashed on the side of the road was a message to stephen king or from stanley kubrick more to the audience that this was not going to be the book i don't know how true that is but it's interesting so interesting even until now i would probably say that's the best stephen king adaptation maybe didn't do the best job of honoring the source material but probably probably the best movie thought that was interesting so stephen king's making a statement here this is stephen king by stephen king for stephen king so he's coming in ready to make a movie that his fans will love the audiences will love it's going to make some money he's going to do two or three now i imagine at this point he's thinking i'm a director and as any good director in the 80s he fueled his cinematic vision with drugs and alcohol lots and lots of drugs stephen king has said he does not remember making it because he was on so many drugs he was doing so much cocaine that he literally does not remember it a crew member of the film talking about the movie after was asked about that and he said i don't remember him doing cocaine but i do remember him drinking lots and lots of beer he said by 6 30 a.m they'd be having a pre-production meeting and stephen king would start his first beer and by 10 a.m when they started shooting he'd be on his 10th or 11th beer so not only was he doing lots of drugs he was also really drunk and it shows it's a batshit movie it really is and the movie is really driven by acdc's soundtrack for better for worse me and andy talked about this andy really liked it they did some really cool stuff you made some really great points that kind of changed my view of it or like did you notice right before someone gets killed they kind of do a rendition the psycho like the the violin like The first time they they did that, I caught it fast. I was like, oh, cool. So what it sounds like they're doing is the guitar player. I can't remember his name. I feel like a shitty musician. It sounds like he's just picking a note and he's bending it on the guitar. So he's going instead of instead of a violin kind of up and down. He's doing it distorted. But then it sounds like on top of that, he's overdubbing it acoustically but not like an acoustic guitar. It sounds like he's playing it so that you can actually hear 
the string getting plucked. So I thought that was pretty cool that they that I'm sure Stephen King was like, I want to do the psycho thing, but I want you guys to do it like cooler. You know, <laughs> I want an ACDC style. If you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or like some of the scenes when the trucks were kind of looking for trouble, not, not really killing anyone yet. There was just like a simple bass line and like no other music but the bass. And I thought that was really cool. I don't know. I thought it was like, I think it matched pretty well. But I, I do think ACDC soundtrack makes this movie unique and special and kind of this weird time capsule where it would, it would lose a lot of the 20 years later mystique without the ACDC soundtrack. But I think it would be much more of like a boring average horror movie without it. Like if they had played the soundtrack more typical and more straightforward for what a horror movie would be doing at that time, this would have just been a boring movie oh Stephen King directed that crazy but with the ACD soundtrack this is it's bad shit I mean just this is ACDC doing ACDC when I say it's an ACDC soundtrack it's not like they were trying to make a score that sounded like a score they were just playing ACDC like they're singing in the music there's like a great horror scene where the so let's let's get to the plot let's get to the plot let me give you a little overview of the overdrive this is the preamble given to us by Stephen King in the film. On June 19th, 1987, at 9.47 a.m. Eastern Time, the Earth passed into the extraordinarily diffuse tail of Rhea M, a rogue comet. According to astronomical calculations, the planet would remain in the tail of the comet for the next eight days, five hours, 29 minutes, and 23 seconds. Okay, what does that have to do with cars? That comet and its diffuse tail, extraordinarily diffuse tail, made... All of the machines come alive, and they want to murder. They are not happy with humans, apparently. They've built up grudges because we use them, I guess, as our, you know, transportation and such, and anything. It's machines. This movie is always often considered like the car, killer car, killer truck movie, but all the machines are going crazy. So, for example, one of the main storylines of this is about a kid who is at a baseball game, idyllic baseball game. They win the game. Coach is like, let me get you some sodas. He goes over to the soda machine, trying to get it to work. It's not listening to him. He's pressing all the buttons. And then out of nowhere, it starts shooting coke, Cokes at him, cans of Coke. It's a little funny because he gets like, I think he gets hit in the nuts. He's like, oh, this is funny, right? And it's kind of like making funny sound effects. But it's not. He gets he gets murdered by the cans. Like one of them hits him in the head and it just literally leaves a can size like hole in his head. And the kids are all watching this. Some of the kids are getting, these cans are shooting across the field. So some of the kids are getting hurt. They're dropping like flies and coach is dead. And uh, the main kid in that scene, the only kid who actually matters, whose name is, his name is Deke Keller. So Deke escapes and we kind of get to see the city going through this disaster through Deke's eyes, because he'll ride his bike through town trying to find his dad. His dad works at a gas station, and that's where the main storyline takes place. That's ultimately where Deke, the baseball boy, is trying to get to. So Deke's waking his way to, through town. He's going through the neighborhood. He's probably trying to go home first, I think. And we see the devastation of the machines rebelling. And there are some unexplainable deaths. Like a Walkman has strangled somebody. A telephone has strangled somebody with the cord. How did the telephone propel itself? I have no idea, but it happened. And so it's not just cars. Lawnmowers are chasing this kid, trying to eat him, coming alive. So so it is machines. By the, by the time we're at the truck stop, the trucks are the main people, obviously. But, you know, 
there could have been devastation untold. Airplanes are crashing. You know, it's much bigger than just cars. And I think that gets overlooked. I think it's an important point to make. I mentioned a machine, uh, a, a lawn mower going crazy. So there's an interesting story about that. This this movie is is kind of cursed. It, it borderline could be considered a cursed movie, I think, because there's some crazy weird stuff that happened. I mean, people are literally getting attacked by machines in this movie, in the movie, and in the production. It is not, it's, it's spreading. Like, it, it was a manifest destiny thing. This lawnmower scene, it comes alive, it chases the kid. During production, the cinematographer, Armando Nanucci, who was Italian and couldn't even communicate with Stephen King, they did not have a translator. The producer, Dino De Laurentiis, thought he did, but the guy he thought was going to be the translator didn't even speak Italian. So apparently Stephen King would talk to the cinematographer throughout the film, and the reply was always, yes, 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 Mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. So I don't think there was a ton of, like, good communication going on in this film in general and kind of explains maybe more about what happened here. So they have the uh, lawnmower and the special effects crew recommends that they take off the blades because it's dangerous. Blades hit things and kick them up. They could hurt somebody. Same reason, you know, you wear shoes and eye protection when you're lawn the, mowing the lawn. You don't want something to jump up and hit you in the eye. Stephen King said, no, I want them. You can see them. It looks good. Armando Nanucci, 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 U-Z-Z-I, he's like, let's take him out. We can't even see him in the shot, Stephen. Stephen King's like, no, I want him in there. Leave him in. I think he had a little bit of 80s director syndrome where he's like, I'm going to do a ton of drugs and I'm just going to be an asshole about everything because it's, I, I just got to stick to my vision and that's the key. So he's, he's doing a little bit of an impression of um, some of those crazy 80s guys. Andy told me this and that hit in, when we recorded, apparently too, they wanted to keep the power low and he wanted to add more and more power to it along with keeping the blades in so not only were the blades in but it was like going in overdrive didn't even mean to do that but it <laughs> it's horrible this is a horrible story so armando is forced to shoot the scene with a overpowered machine uh lawnmower blade flying in his direction he's expressed the desire to not have the blade special effects is told in that stephen king is a visionary and he's sticking with it it's not even in the shot you can't even see it in the shot so he gets hit in the eye with the rock because of the blade being exposed they have to fly him they filmed this in wilmington north carolina they had to fly him to raleigh north carolina to a hospital because it was so bad and not only was he not able to use his eye for the rest of that production because of the injury he could not use his eye for the rest of his life he lost his right eye which was his shooting eye according to him as you can imagine an eye is very important to a cinematographer whose whole job is creating images and looking at pictures to make them better he did work after this but he said he never got another big movie because who would want somebody who didn't have depth perception to shoot their movie which is a fair point so basically ruined this guy's career because Stephen King forced this. It's horrible, 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 slightly cursed. So a machine taking out a man in a movie about machine taking out a man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, se- it seems like Stephen King didn't get a lot of support in general on this movie. Actually, it's kind of hard to blame him for the failure. I mean, it's not actually, you can. So there's a ton of going wrong, coked out of his mind, drunk, took out the eye of the cinematographer on the film cinematographer and him could not communicate because they did not speak the same language 
De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis, also played a major role in the failure of this movie from what I've read. And it's it's kind of a bummer what happened. He's responsible for the bad translator. So that's his fault. He could have hired an actual translator for Stephen King. On top of that, so King wanted Bruce Springsteen to play the Estevez role, Bill, originally. I don't think Stephen King liked Hollywood actors. In an interview about this movie, he said that he expected them all to be super vain and super annoying and hard to work with, but that was not the experience, and they were all actually great. But pre-production, I'm guessing he wanted somebody who was more of a, a normal person, and Bruce Springsteen especially kind of represents the middle class and the working class uh, in the 80s in a major way. And so I think that would have actually been great casting. I don't know if Bruce Springsteen's a great actor or not. He did appear in one movie in High Fidelity where he played himself. I want more. I want to see the others on the big top five. I want to see Penny and Charlie and Sarah, all of them, you know, just see him and talk to him. You know, like a Bruce Springsteen song. You call, you ask him how they are, and see if they forgive him. Yeah, and then, and then I'd feel good. And they'd feel good. You know, they'd feel good maybe, but, but you'd feel better. I'd feel clean and calm. That's what you're looking for. You want to get ready to start again? That'd be good for you. Great, Ethan. You give that big final good luck and goodbye to your all-time top five and just move on down the road. So I think it could have really worked. And I think it makes sense that Stephen King is so big on the middle class on like, yeah. Uh, so it would have made sense. I think it would have been a big boon to the project. Apparently some of uh, the crew said they felt like King lost a little bit of his zeal for the project when he got overruled on Estevez. And, and with that, it wasn't even that they talked about it and chose Estevez together. Apparently King wanted Bruce and then De Laurentiis hired the son of his friend, Father Estevez. To hire this young working kid and, and Emilio had been in some big roles he was in Outsiders before this he was also in Repo Man so he, he was an up-and-coming actor but it was still really a a nepotism hire and and the the vision to hire Bruce Springsteen is, is a good instinct I think I think that would have been fun and and man if you had Bruce doing the lead King directing and ACDC doing the soundtrack insane and I wonder too I, I didn't read this anywhere but if he would have had Bruce Springsteen do the soundtrack which would have given a whole different flavor to the movie and could have been actually really great so the more I'm thinking about this that was a big breaking point in this film like I think he lost a lot especially if you lost a director because of that so just kind of a, a batshit movie the acting in it is is not very good um in my opinion another another reason Springsteen would have been better Emilio Estevez is really flat in this movie his character is incredibly boring if King is trying to criticize Kubrick for Jack Torrance not having an arc, then I think you'd have to turn it back on him for this character. There is no arc. He is just a good guy. Literally, the first scene, the girl calls him a hero. The girl loves him instantly. He's charming. Girl calls him a hero. It's Bill. His name is Bill. The girl's name is Brett. Bill and Brett, which is not confusing. And basically makes the best decision every time. Everybody else is kind of scared or shitty. And, and you know, he's the guy who's brave and smart. So pretty boring. His, him and the girl don't have a ton of great chemistry to me, uh, truthfully. There is a fun role in this movie. You may have actually recognized a voice from the trailer, if you were listening. 
One of the three main storylines, so we talked about Deke and his bicycle going through town, making his way to dad. We have talked about those already trapped at the truck stop. The Dixie boy. Where everyone will eventually congregate. Yeah, pretty cool. The third storyline we have is a young married couple, newlywed. In fact, they are going on their honeymoon on this drive. When everything starts to happen, they are chased down by a truck to start the movie, a murderous truck. We got to get some gas. That's good, because I got to go to the ladies. Can I come in and watch? No, you cannot come in and watch. Honestly, the first time I watched this, they were pretty annoying. She yells a lot. She's like a very kind of cliche uh, wife character who blames her husband for everything, but they're actually very cute together. Like he likes her and rolls with it very well and they compliment each other well. So it's not that bad. She just has a very high pitched kind of uh, whiny voice. I know we can call the police from that truck stop up there. Also, the voice of Lisa Simpson. That character is Yardley, played by Yardley Smith. I hope I'm saying that right. Who plays Lisa Simpson on The Simpsons. So listen back to that trailer. See if you recognize it. Once you know that, it's hard not to hear in the movie and, and it's kind of crazy. But they're actually very sweet. And Yardley Smith is a very fun actress. She, she um, I wish she'd got more live action roles. I'm sure she has more that I haven't seen, but she's really great. And she honestly might be the most fun to watch out of all the characters. Like she, she might be the most charismatic and, and carry the movie the most. Her and her husband are great. So that's a fun fact. And she's, she's really Andy when we talked about this was like, this might've been the inspiration for Marge Simpson because she is so over the top. So that's fun. A lot of, a lot of great, weird, great stuff in this movie. I, I, I highly recommend it. There's a lot of scenes of of trucks blowing up. The uh, the owner of the diner is named Bubba, and he kind of is Stephen King's middle America dark side character. I feel like so often, I mean, Jack Torrance fits the mold. There's probably a ton you could think of, but just kind of the old white guy who's just kind of a jerk and kind of is just all the shitty stereotypes of racist, you know, uh, trashy shitty people he, he seems to really demonized <laughs> shitty white guys which is fine but it's, it's a go-to and this is kind of that guy so he's he's kind of a jerk at one point in the movie he basically tells um emilio estevez that he knows he's on parole so he's not going to pay him because either he's in parole doing a good job with him or he's going to be in jail so he's basically forcing emilio estevez into slave labor taking advantage of the parole laws he also has an arsenal of weapons in his basement because he's a crazy white guy to sell them, I guess, or because he's waiting for doomsday. They kind of imply he sells them, but it comes in handy in this movie because uh, they have rocket launchers. There's some great shots of people blowing up uh, diesel, you know, trucker, semi semi trucks with with uh, rocket launchers, which, you know, that's always fun. There's some really hilarious stuff of people yelling at cars and fighting with cars and and just kind of going cr- crazy. Uh, one of my other favorite actresses and characters in this movie was Ellen, Mc- was played by Ellen McElduff. M- Ellen McElduff. Ellen McElduff. Character's name is Wanda June. She's a waitress at the restaurant. She kind of reminds me of that one waitress in Waiting, the the comedy, who's 
bubbling with anger under the surface and just is like on the edge of snapping at people all the time where uh, she hates her job. She gets super annoyed. People are very sexist and um, condescending towards her. And, you know, she hates it reasonably. And then the machines turn on her as well. Not only do humans suck, but the, mach the machines suck as well. And there's this great scene where she's cracking. She's really cracking at this point. And she's, she's serving people while they're all sitting in the restaurant waiting. They're, they're literally just being herded basically by these trucks all day where they drive in circles and keep them trapped in there. So they have nowhere to go. They're just, you know, no one knows what's going on. And she starts to crack and she basically is like, she's yelling at the guys in the restaurant. She's like, they can't do this. We made them. We made them. They can't do this. We made them. And it turns and it escalates and she ends up running out into the street and yelling at the cars, you know, we made you, we made you. And it's great. It's like one of the best. I, I said uh, Lisa Simpson carries this movie, but I, I'll change it to, to Lisa and wanted you. That's so great. Honestly, the peak of the movie it happens about halfway through. It's the heart. It's the core of the movie. I mean, that gives that gives like the true insight into the horror of what's going on in these minds, and truly made me think about the theme more. Which Stephen King has essentially said there's no theme to this movie. He did not have a message. It was as simple as what would happen if the machines came alive and tried to murder us. Um, in an interview, at least he he was he was definitely trying to say this. Don't read too much into the the themes, but uh, you know, machines. Uh, turning on man i think is a metaphor that you know as simple as it is can't be ignored um in 2020 joe hill had talked about wanting to make a sequel to maximum overdrive and i think that'd be great i think this is a movie uh, where on its face you see uh, the instant camp of it where you it's directed by stephen king acdc does the music you know and you're just like oh that's probably going to be a ball. And then I'm not taking it too seriously going in, but I do think this is a movie we're in the era of remakes and they remake movies that were good already. And they remake movies that were just fine. And that's fine too. make money, make them better. Do your interpretation. I don't care. They're just less interesting to me than movies like this, where this was a missed opportunity. I think I was surprised the more I researched this, I, I was expecting to find fun stories like drunk Stephen King and, people's eyes getting shot out by evil lawnmowers. But I think ultimately I feel like this was a missed opportunity. Stephen King did not direct another movie after this. And while this movie is not good, it's not boring. It can be, there's long stretches. It gets a little long in the middle. Andy agreed with me there, but it, it's not bad. And, and there's some fun stuff. Like there's a reason it's kind of stayed alive despite being one of his like less interesting adaptations. And then there's a easy hook where you're like Stephen King directed it. ACDC did the music, but the timing of a story about machines attacking man, he was right on the cusp of like the technological era where, you know, more prevalent of a concept now than ever also an, an ancient one but but still like you know it's a very old idea but the bruce springsteen aspect the acdc soundtrack that to me doesn't quite fit but was doing something like there's so many movies now that come out where you just kind of watch them and you just go oh I, you know a week later you're like oh, i forgot about that movie i i was a uh, yeah i didn't make any impact this this made an impact and there's something 
great when a director is just flying by the seat of their pants, which I think is what this movie really was. And I don't know if they should remake it. I, I just I can't help but feel like Stephen King got done dirty and, and didn't get a fair shot at a directing career. And I don't say he needs to be a director or anything, but this just really wasn't as bad as it gets credit for. And a lot of the bad stuff I doubt was his fault. Could he have been sober and done a better job? Could he have, you know, who knows? But I, I, I do feel like there's like, there's a little bit of that sad about this movie and wishes I could see a, a director's, the, the full director's cut with Bruce Springsteen. And, and while that version would not be able to happen with the remake, I do think the remake uh, makes sense now. If this is something, if you did with a bigger budget, with special effects, with a better director, no offense, Stephen King, or a more sober director, at least. I think there's something there. Uh, you know, again, it's a simple story. Machines attacking man. It's not crazy, but the fact that this will define Stephen King's directing career, the fact that he had a three-movie deal and only made one of them. Uh, has he ever had a chance to direct again? I don't know. That would be interesting. I wonder if he's scarred by it. I wonder if he just, no one wanted to give him another shot, but... Not as bad. Not as bad. Like Cujo, Cujo is a worse movie than this. Easy. Cujo's cool and it's fine, but it's boring. And it's literally the whole movie is just like the 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 mom and the kid stuck in a car while the kid gets more and more dehydrated. And you're the real horror is watching that kid become emaciated in Cujo. The dog is looks adorable. And you know, even when he's mad, you're kind of like, oh, cute dog. And you get the dog drool, actually. The dog drool is also horrible. So like Max Muller Drive, you know, of his like bad movies should be at the top as far as like what it is and what the potential was and like even the execution, it's bad shit. A little boring in the middle. So one of the big finales of the movie and maybe the big finale of the movie, the montage, this is like when when they really are getting put into action. And this is hilarious because it's so boring. As I compliment the movie, I'll switch now to the boring part one of the boring parts, but it's also hilarious. It's hilarious. It works because it's so boring. The big thing is the trucks are running out of fuel, which makes sense because they've been driving in circles, terrorizing the humans up until this point, but they're running out of fuel. And apparently this is the one gas station along this highway for miles and miles, which kind of makes sense, but also is a little funny. And so the machines come to the humans and force them to fill up their tanks. All right, you bastard. Tell all your friends main lines open. I got the best shit on the East Coast, practically uncut. You got that fuck face? And so <laughs> there's a line of trucks miles and miles long, and they are, it's a ACDC music-filled, fueled montage of all of the humans basically just like working sweating in their white shirts in the texas sun does this take place in texas no it does take place in north carolina in the film context as well in the north carolina sun working filling up tanks of gas like they're just filling up car engines with gas and that's the big thing and it all you know they're t talking shit to the cars it's hilarious and they're like you know now they have a little bit of leverage because the cars need them so they feel a little more emboldened to be to be fighting back but they're literally just talking shit to the cars and the cars are like honking back at them and uh, you know flashing their lights and honking and it just goes on 
for miles and miles of, of the line and then you know eventually they run out of gas and then um they even have a uh gas refueling car there that comes so they refill the gas tanks and they have to keep working um but that that, that really is the like the finale like that's the big fun and fun you know getting the team together getting a plan and, and doing it and they're filling it's literally a montage of, of somebody you know working at a gas station respect it looked very hard um so this movie doesn't have a big ending this it actually kind of reminds me of um uh steven spielberg's war of the worlds where they're just kind of like oh the aliens actually got a virus and that killed them and that's it and you're just like oh okay you know it's more about the story of the people who had to go through this experience than what the experience was or how the the, the aliens were defeated or the in this case the machines um so <laughs> for our main storyline all right so the kid with the bike ends up making it back to the <sighs> To the gas station. He makes it back to the gas station, survives a ton, goes through a ton of trauma, makes it back. Bubba is the guy who has the arsenal of cars or arsenal of weapons under his place. Bubba forced Deke's dad. Deke's dad worked at the gas station. He forced his dad to do something, to go out into the dangerous uh, car car rage center uh, area, go outside where it's dangerous with the cars, and do something i can't remember what grabbed something or something and he didn't take the danger seriously and he got the deke's dad killed so deke gets there he finds out his dad is dead the guy bubba the asshole just is basically like sorry boy you bet your dad's dead and everybody gets mad at him uh so deke's with us now and he's part of the survival uh we also have the married couple ended up there they just were looking for anything and saw the gas station and figured that was their best shot so they arrived at some point through the movie and have been part of all this fun as well <sighs> so so for this main storyline where now all three of them have congregated to the gas station apparently emilio estevez knows of an island just off the coast of north carolina where there are no machines which begs a larger explanation is like a camping island are there no humans there is there any civilization are they basically going to just an empty island no machines aren't you going to have to take you know a boat there i guess the boat as long as it doesn't have an engine i think he says he has a sailboat too or knows how to get one so this is a big plan they end up finding a, an entrance an exit through like a sewer to get out they all sneak out they all run to the boat there's a great scene when they're sneaking out where they get stopped by a fast food takeout sign with a speaker. And it is saying, humans here, humans here, humans here, trying to narc on them. The little kid whose dad died, he's cracked as well. He's He is, you know, this journey has changed him. He takes the machine gun from Brett, looks at the machine, and he says, This is for my dad, you're not enough, son of a bitch blast this thing just d sprays it with bullets immediately after without hesitating turns to the girl hands her the gun back says i don't want this anymore <laughs> so just a hilarious switch there's another great uh character earlier in the movie just talking about funny moments now who's a bible salesman and he's also just kind of like a, a jerk like misogynist he's hitting on the main character brett he picks her up uh, as a hitchhiker and is like immediately trying to like rub her leg and it's super gross she calls him out big time though 
but it's still uh, just still like a major creep and a Bible salesman, which is funny because it reminded me of Paper Moon. Uh, listen to that episode if you haven't. But he is trying to sell a Bible to the young newlyweds when one of the trucks hits his car out in the parking lot. And this is before they realize just how serious everything is. And so he's mid-pitch talking about how this Bible has changed his life and how it's brought him peace and love in his life. It'll give you protection in time of danger. It'll give you health in time of sickness. It'll give you fines, the vinegars, the judges. And he sees his car get hit by a car and immediately flips into just like major jerk and like is cussing at the couple. She tries to get up and help and he shoves her out of the way and like calls her a bitch and runs out and is swearing at the car. It ends up leading to his demise. He dies a slow death throughout the movie. He's actually in a field after this. He gets knocked into a field uh, and we think he's dead. Turns out he's alive. Deke finds him when he's coming to the thing, uh, but he does end up dying and, and is basically not involved in the movie after this. They just keep him alive to torture him, I guess. Stephen King really didn't like that guy. To get to the ending, they end up finding a boat. They're able to get away. That's like their happy ending. And they go to the machineless island, I guess, to, to wait this out. But the movie, as the boat is sailing away, gives us this explanation with a paragraph of text. Two days after, a large UFO was destroyed in space by a Russian weather satellite, quote-unquote, which happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and a Class 4 nuclear and Class 4 nuclear missiles. Approximately six days later, the Earth passed beyond the tail of Rhea M, exactly as predicted. The survivors of the Dixie Boy are still survivors. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. That's the movie right there that we should have got. Or maybe the sequel can be about this, but it starts out with a magical asteroid passing past Earth and creating this, right? Already kind of batshit. Turns out there was a large UFO in space that was destroyed by a a Russian weather satellite, which happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and Class 4 nuclear missiles. This is especially interesting because in researching this movie, there was multiple interviews where people asked the same dumb question of Stephen King. You're the master of scares. What scares you? Both times Stephen King answered, this must have been hot on his brain. Both times Stephen King answered nuclear weapons and the fact that we are, you know, he was really terrified about uh, Reagan's Star Wars project and he was really terrified about the proliferation of nukes in space and the satellites so I don't think there's a coincidence that he f- ham-fisted in Class 4 nuclear missiles to be part of this, along with the laser cannon. you think a laser cannon or Class 4 nuclear missiles, one or the other, would be enough to destroy this UFO. Also, a UFO. So now they're aliens as part of this story, which why were the aliens making the machines attack humans? Was this an invasion? Was this just a side effect that they didn't intend? Was this, uh, you know, what, what? what so when i was reading about him and kubrick he also mentioned uh that he loves kubrick movies in general so he's not a hater and specifically mentioned dr strangelove which is all about the thin line of safety between responsible nuke ownership by (laughs) world leaders and 
nuclear fallout you know and how easily it'd be funny enough kubrick when researching that movie originally had intended to make it a horror film and when he researched the laws and procedures put in place in case of you know nuclear fallout he realized he couldn't do it as a horror movie it had to be a comedy because of how absurd everything was and all the real guidelines kind of as a response so that's a fun movie too but clearly king was on drugs drunk and totally paranoid about nukes at this point so i, I just love that it gets ham-fisted in your, your paranoia is showing steven this movie unsurprisingly was not well received by critics or by the paying populace of film goers there was some pretty like mean things said about it and I, I get why but i do i do feel like we see this a lot nowadays but i feel like the media can just once something is deemed acceptable to trash on everybody wants to and it doesn't matter if it deserves it or not or you know and this movie does deserve it, but again, if you know, it's not worse than Cujo, <laughs> which came out before this. Yeah, this is what I wanted to read, which actually I, I kind of agree with. And I guess it's not as negative, in my opinion, as, as Paul Atanasio says of the Washington Post. But he wrote the film, quote unquote, is like sitting alongside a three year old as he skids his Tonka trucks across the living room floor and says, we, except on a somewhat grander scale and added that as a director, Stephen King, quote unquote, proves that he doesn't got an ounce of visual style, the vaguest idea of how to direct actors or the sense that God gave a grapefruit, which is mean. <laughs> like, did you have to say he doesn't have the sense that, like he was on drugs? Give him a break. You're not, you know, drugs don't make you sensible. Like, uh... <laughs> <sighs> the vaguest idea of how to direct actors too is just mean it was his first movie and he, he clearly got it as a gimmick so like what do you 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 would say no you know so i thought that was really mean has a 15 percent on rotten tomatoes uh with three crit 13 critic scores metacritic gives it a 24 percent sadly this movie also won two golden raspberry awards i think which were the equivalent of Razzies. Oh, they had Dove Raspberries. They are the Razzies. Um, <laughs> Emilio Estevez got it for worst actor and King got it for worst director. So this movie was like the fun movie at the time to trash on, which is, again, kind of a bummer because it, it, it really is it, like the right kind of bad. I think this is a movie that should be celebrated for being bad, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some other interesting things that I learned from watching interviews and other youtube videos i thought it was interesting stephen king called this a moron movie and he said splash the mermaid movie starring tom hanks was also a moron movie and by that he just meant you shouldn't have to think you just should be able to come in and have a good time like he said no one thinks that mermaids are real but you're still you know watching a mermaid movie i agree with the sentiment but i i thought it was weird he linked this to splash that felt kind of petty almost because i think splash was pretty well received and kind of a hit so there wasn't meant to be a lot of commentary this is based on the 1978 short story trucks you know so inspired by stephen king there was also a made for tv series based on trucks that i didn't watch any of because it looked really boring but supposedly more accurate to the source material and you know Watch it if you want. It's like a three-parter. I think it's like three hours, which is kind of crazy. Uh, later in his life, Emilio Estevez would say Maximum Overdrive was his biggest acting regret. He also said that he doesn't think King would be offended by that because they have spoken over the years on the phone. And multiple times, King has said 
can you forgive me for that when the subject of maximum overdrive comes up? So I think there's a lot of regret in this movie and, and how it all went. Fun fact, this is really connected to a bona fide cult classic, Blue Velvet, by director David Lynch. Both of these were produced by De Laurentiis, and they both were shot in Wilmington, North Carolina. And apparently the cast would hang out behind the scenes and, and were friends and talked and would uh, kind of go back and forth between sets. So it's hilarious to think that David Lynch was right on the periphery of this movie being made. And I wonder, I really would love to know if Stephen King and David Lynch ever talked about filmmaking while he's producing this. I actually think if I had to predict David Lynch would like this movie because this feels like a very Freudian movie that's very much just somebody's subconscious kind of going which i you know from my understanding of uh david lynch's film making that's a, a big thing for him is feeling things more than thinking about too much about them so de laurentis also made blue velvet which is just such a yin and yang happening in north carolina at that time in wilmington specifically both of these movies de laurentis had been a producer for mgm up until this point, and both Blue Velvet and Maximum Overdrive were meant to come out through MGM, which was a bigger distributor, a bigger name. It has more prestige, I imagine. But De Laurentiis used Maximum Overdrive and Blue Velvet, and there was a few other films that came out as part of this release to launch his own production company called DEG, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, which is the title at the beginning of the trailer and movie of this film. Manhunter would be released with this. They would later release Evil Dead 2, uh, which is another classic. So there were some good movies being made. De Laurentiis clearly was doing stuff right to some degree. Didn't work with Maxim Overdrive. Eventually, the company would close down before they could release Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I mentioned earlier, Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson, has a role in this movie. She plays the wife of the young couple. There's actually a Simpsons episode based on this movie called Maximum Homer Drive, where Homer becomes a truck driver and dreams that it has an auto driving system. And I did not watch the episode. I'll probably pull it up to pull some clips when I'm editing this. Future Caleb here to butt in. I just watched the Maximum Homer Drive episode and... It is very lightly inspired by Maximum Overdrive. Basically, Homer has eating contest versus Red Barkley to eat a giant steak. Red Barkley has done it before, but this time he's already eaten a full lamb, apparently. So eating the entire steak, he does it, he beats Homer. Homer can't finish it. Homer was talking a big game, and he dies. He was a truck driver, so Homer takes over his truck route and on the drive realizes he's not going to make it so he buys uppers and takes the whole bottle and then realizes he shouldn't have taken all of the uppers so he then takes sleeping pills which puts him into a dream coma basically where he finds out that the truckers have automatic driving and it's a big scam where they don't actually have to work but they're getting paid to drive so homer brags about it and sits on the front of the car with bart while it's driving and is you know letting the secret out so the truckers turn on him and try to kill him and you know he ends up getting away but loosely inspired oh also lisa does not play a part in the maximum overdrive storyline at all which i thought was a missed opportunity but 
The real funny part is there's actually a Kubrick reference in the episode. The auto driving is done by a little machine on the trucks. And at one point, Homer is trying to crash into the truck drivers because they're blocking his way. And the machine talks to him and sounds like Hal and says, I'm sorry, Homer, but I can't let you do that. I'm sorry, Red, but I can't let you do that. Then he finds out he's not Red and he bounces. But funny that, you know, Kubrick still haunting Stephen King, even in an episode of Simpsons loosely inspired by his movie, the one specifically where he took shots at my interpretation directly Kubrick uh, in the marketing. So full circle there. Interesting. Just wanted to add that little tidbit back to the past, Caleb. In that promo we listened to to kick off the Maximum Overdrive section, if you are a horror movie fan, you may have noticed that that was not music from Maximum Overdrive. That was more stereotypical horror music kind of guy was saying if they had done made a made a boring movie that was actually music from halloween 3 i don't know why they use that for the promo or what but that does happen periodically you definitely hear other soundtracks in other trailers but kind of funny so this is a it's a little slow in the middle but it for him so soundtrack emilio estevez meth lisa simpson bruce springsteen hovering over the project haunting it to this day so this will be a shorter episode hope you guys like that uh maybe it's a nice change of pace maybe i'll do some more solo episodes we'll see this was good thank you for coming um and launching off the halloween season with me been very fun so anybody who's listening at this point and sticking with it i appreciate it and i hope you enjoyed this episode and keep trying to put out good content in the future that is worthwhile so andy if you're listening i apologize again i'm impressed you listened to this episode twice basically you lived it with me and then had to do it again so thank you oh favorite lines andy's pick I said it already, and I'll say it again. Curtis, are you dead? (laughs) Oh, Andy's pick for next movie. Assuming he's able to come on, we are going to be doing Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Tim Burton, Michael Keaton. Really great movie, really fun. Great Halloween pick. Ian, hopefully it's not too scary. My favorite line, we made you, we made you. You can't do this, we made you. Well, thank you everybody. It's Halloween, please go watch a movie. Make it scary, make it fun. 